Hi there, thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley. Hope you can stick around. We've got a lot to talk about today. What time it is? Uh, what time is it on the moon? It's moon time. Okay. Could be daytime, could be nighttime. Depends where you are, but uh, we're talking about real time. Uh, that we'll, we'll elaborate shortly. Uh, there might be a new way to find Planet Nine. Uh, we're going to look at some sun rays on Mars and um, the dark Big Bang Theory. We'll also be answering some audience questions and uh, much, much more on this episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me to hash all of that out with a hash brown in hand is <laughs> Fred Watson, a strong road large. Hello, Fred. Yeah, hash, uh, hash brown would go down really well, actually, just now. Oh, Thank you. Thank you for I mentioning love them. it. Yes, I, I absolutely do. love them. <laughs> I, know, I know they're a heart attack for breakfast. Yes, yeah, yeah um, quite yeah. so. Yeah. Um, welcome back to the real world in the same time zone as me. Are, yeah. are you still suffering from jet lag after your sojourn to Europe? It's not been too bad, thanks, Andrew. I um, did hit the wall at nine o'clock for a couple of nights after the uh, nine nine p.m. I have to say, not nine a.m., which would have been <laughs> difficult. But uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty good, thank you. Uh, so far, so good. Excellent, good gear. Oh, and there's Muscat just tripping. Oh, uh, Muscat! We've never yeah. heard from Muscat. Wow. Well, he just uh, he's kind of looking for somebody. Sure, yeah, probably <laughs> not you. <laughs> yeah, not me. <laughs> Uh, well, it's nice to hear from Muscat. Now, uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, what time is it on the moon, Fred? <laughs> it's probably hash brown time, mostly. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, that's, uh, this is what's prompt, prompted uh, this piece of research or uh, investigation that's actually going on. I think it's being led uh, from Europe, but includes pretty well all the world's space agencies. And so... Uh, I think um, uh, the the idea is how do you define time on the moon? Do you uh, have lots of different time zones like we have on Earth, or do you have a single lunar time zone? Uh, how does it all work? And how do you deal with nuances like the fact that the moon is a, a much less massive body than the Earth? It only has one eightieth of the mass of the Earth, yeah. and so. The gravitational time, the relativistic gravitational time dilation on the moon is different from what it was, what it is on Earth. So there's a very, very tiny difference amounting to microseconds between the way clocks tick on the moon and the way they tick on Earth. Uh, but the story kind of starts really with the fact that over our the history of our exploration of the moon. Uh, every space mission that's gone to the moon has basically set up its own time system, and usually uh, they, they, they use the time back, you know, mission headquarters wherever that might be. No. And that's clearly not going to work if you've got many, uh, many experiments going on on the moon. Perhaps many simultaneous missions on the moon, uh, where you know you might have a permanent permanent base on the moon. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I mean, I can imagine that the Americans have set up a base and the Russians set up a base um, that will have a meeting at seven o'clock, but <laughs> they're using different times. So, exactly. So yeah. you've you've got to. Uh, They've got a history of um, 
not keeping up with the world on time. Uh, they stuck with the Julian calendar a lot longer than everybody else. When oh, that's true. We yes. switched to the Gregorian calendar. So, uh, yeah. We were pretty slow at that in the... Uh, in, in, the yeah, in Britain? Yes, huh? 1752. Yeah, is uh, that the famous case of where um, uh, there were like 11 days lost and all those people got upset because they thought they were going to die or something? Pre, uh, give us back our 11 days. That's exactly yeah. what happened. Yes. The, um, uh, I can't remember the, excuse me, I can't remember the dates when the change was made. And I should do because I've given talks about this stuff in the past. Yes. It was a long time ago. But yes, yeah, 1752, there was a general election about the same time. And that became a hot topic uh, in the election, uh, you know, the, 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 the election we're material. About a time where people still sort of didn't understand the whys and wherefores of things, and they thought that taking those days away yep. would, would cause shorten their life. Yeah, yeah shorten their life right. by eleven days or whatever yeah. it turned out to be. And the government had stolen it. Yeah, it's a good story. <laughs> as having your spirit stolen when the, when your photograph is taken. That was yes, along the same lines. Yeah, it's uh, a fascinating uh, story. If you want to look it up, it's it's on um, Wikipedia and a bunch of other uh, websites. It's a really fascinating story about those um, those catch up days back in the day. Back in the day, that's back right. And of course, that um, that same time system spread to Australia. Uh, yeah, at uh, um, by nefarious means, I'm sure. But yep. <laughs> coming back to the moon, yeah, uh, where we were. Yeah, there is a. So there's a, there's a essentially a set of discussions going on uh, to, uh, to basically to nut out uh, an, an architecture that will oversee uh, communications on the moon, navigation services on the moon, and part and parcel of that is time. It's being called LunarNet, uh, wow. L-U-N-A-N-E-T, all one word, a bit like Space Nuts is all one word. LunarNet is the architecture uh, that is trying to be agreed. And a comment from uh, Xavier uh, Ventura Travesse, who is uh, the European Space Agency's Moonlight Navigation Manager, uh, who's coordinating the European Space Agency's contribution to LunarNet. Um, Xavier says, LunarNet is a framework of mutually agreed upon standards, protocols, and interface requirements allowing future lunar missions to work together, conceptually similar to what we did on Earth for joint use of GPS and Galileo. Now in the lunar context, we have the opportunity to agree on our interoperability approach from the very beginning before systems are actually implemented. Hello, Marnie. Marnie's <laughs> dropped in with you. Is Cheers. that your coffee? <laughs> Thank you, Marnie. <laughs> Told you they might get a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. There you are. Thank you. <laughs> so um, that's basically what's happening. It, 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 and, uh, you know, uh, in fact, there's another comment from a, uh, an ESA navigation systems engineer, Pietro Giordano, who says timing is the crucial element. During oh. this meeting, we agreed on the importance and urgency of defining a common lunar reference time, which is internationally accepted and towards which all lunar systems and users may refer to. Uh, a joint international effort is now being launched towards achieving this. And that's really what this story is all about. It's about people talking about how we uh, set up time on the moon. And well, I'm just so, going to ask what may be a dumb question, but why can't they just go with Zulu time or, or um, international time? Well, my guess is that that's what will happen, uh, that it will be... Oh, UT I've solved it. I've solved it. You solved the problem, yeah. 
UT1 uh, is yeah. the universal time system that is agreed upon on Earth and um, is, it, it comes from the International um, Bureau of Weights and Measures in, yeah. in Paris. Uh, that's, I think, the organization that, um, that, that coordinates it all. But uh, um, the, the, the issue, though, is that if you've got like lunar GPS systems and things of that sort, um, which, by the way, some radio astronomers take a pretty dim view of because they want to put a radio telescope on the dark, on the far side of the moon uh, where you're immune from radio contamination from Earth. Um, if you put GPS satellites in orbit around the moon, well, you've kind of ruined that to start with. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, the, the, the issue is that if you're looking at really um, precise lunar timing, you have got this issue of the uh, gravitational time dilation on the moon. Um, there is uh, a figure uh, which uh, I haven't checked this, but it may well be about right. Um, because the gravitational potential on the surface of the moon is less than the gravitational potential on the surface of the Earth, now, the clock on the moon is going to run faster uh, than one on the Earth uh, by about 56 microseconds per day. Okay. And that is significant. That is really significant because GPS systems rely on nanoseconds. You know, they're, they've got to be accurate to far better precision than that. Really? So you can't, so that's really the answer, the, the, the counter answer to your suggestion. You can't just import terrestrial time. You've got well, to tweak yeah, it in some I, way. You could if you could just make a clock that runs 0.56 microseconds faster, couldn't you? Just, yeah. just change the speed well, of the clock. Yes, that the, that's right. So, you, so you've got, but 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 then you've immediately got something different from UT one. You can't just import it. You've got, wow. you, you can you can use it as the basis, but you've got to tweak it uh, to allow for the uh, you know to allow for the low gravitational field. So all of this sort of thing is clearly what these people are talking about. No uh, wonder we committee. <laughs> uh, yes, that's right. It's, it's, if you if in doubt, form a committee. It's what you yeah. do. But, uh, right. They even did that when uh, Hans Lippershey turned up with the first telescope in the Hague. In, really? <laughs> yes, indeed. In sixteen hundred eight, they formed a committee. Uh, that's what um, what everybody does. Anyway, uh, there is uh, a nice final comment from uh, uh, from Xavier, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, throughout human history, exploration has actually been a key driver of improved timekeeping and geodetic reference models, which is a really good point because exploration is what drove the invention of the chronometer, you know, the Harrison chronometer and all of that stuff so that you can find your way properly. Yeah. Uh, and he, say, he goes on to say, it's certainly an exciting time to do that now for the moon, working towards defining an internationally agreed timescale and a common selenocentric reference, which will not only ensure interoperability, <laughs> He likes this word, interoperability between the different lunar navigation systems, but which will also foster a large number of research opportunities and applications in cislunar space. There you go. That's the there is, that's the words from the top. Who would have thought it was so complicated to tell time <laughs> yes. on the moon? Well, Although it gives me an opportunity to raz my brother who, uh, when growing up, couldn't understand how he was older than our sister because she was born in April and he was born in July. So how could he be older? He didn't get the concept of years. 
Oh, no, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's always <laughs> funny just hearing him try to figure it out. Um, oh, well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Uh, so uh, moon time is yet to be established. Um, something that they may establish is a new way to find Planet Nine. What's that? Well, I like this story. We're going to look with our eyes. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. That's what we've been doing so far. Um, it doesn't it's, work. It's um, it, it, it is a, uh, a, a, a an issue that goes back. You and I have talked about this several times before, but not recently, which is why yeah. I thought it was a nice story to cover. Uh, the idea, of course, that there are several, and it's quite a large number, of the objects, the icy asteroids out there in the Kuiper Belt beyond the orbit of Neptune, <clears throat> whose, whose highly elongated orbits seem to, uh, seem to align. Uh, uh, it's, it's a particular cluster of those objects. And so they all, you know, they, they, they're, uh, their orbits are all aligned in, in one direction. Wow. Now, that's been disputed in more recent papers. What has been suggested is that that's just a selection effect. Uh, we're seeing that because we're only looking at the brighter objects. And, you know, if you look at everything or you look at the whole cloud of Kuiper Belt objects in orbit around the sun beyond Neptune, you're going to find that that thing disappears. However, uh, the proponents for Planet Mine 9 are confident uh, that they are correct that this uh, curious alignment of the orbits is being caused by something that has not yet been uh, been discovered. And the suggestion is it's an object five to ten times the Earth's mass. Um, and I think, if I remember rightly, something like four times the diameter of the Earth was suggested. But that depends on its density, of course. So five to ten times the mass of the Earth is the critical bit. And um, that's uh, led to it being called Planet Nine, which has upset some other people who think Planet Nine is Pluto, um, but um, yes. the international astronomical community doesn't think that is the case. Anyway, um, how do you how do you discover uh, Planet Nine? Well, looking for it doesn't seem to have worked. No, uh, and part of the reason is that the uh, the the position where it's most likely to be is slap bang in the middle of the Milky Way. Uh, uh, and so it's really um it's uh, you know it's it's hidden among gazillions of other stars you're looking for something uh whose distance is is if i remember rightly it's thousands of times the distance of the earth from the sun uh so way way out there in the depths of the solar system um you have to uh look for its motion to identify that it's not a star yeah. uh, and they things at that distance move very, very slowly through space. So uh, this suggestion, though, comes from um, Manho Chan, who is an associate professor in the Department of Science and Environmental Studies at the Education University of Hong Kong, um, uh, has written a paper called What If Planet Nine Has Satellites? And follows through some of the um, tricks that that might bring for would-be discoverers of Planet Nine. Uh, so if you so the theory goes, uh, if you have uh, satellites of a planet like Planet Nine, uh, as they orbit it, if they're in orbits that are anything but perfect circles, um, they will be heated by tidal interactions, and this is kind of what happens to the 
well, particularly Io in orbit around Jupiter, that's squeezed and squashed by the gravity of Jupiter as it as it orbits, uh, and that is why its temperature high uh, is high enough to make it the most volcanically active body in the solar system. Uh, it's erupting all the time. So this same idea, if you apply it to Planet Nine, what you've got is uh, essentially heating that is variable. Uh, as the planet goes around, sorry, as the satellite goes around its planet, uh, that heating, um, uh, you know, it, it, it changes. Oh, the, the temperature of the, the satellite changes uh, at, throughout the orbit uh, around its parent body, which in this case is the hypothetical planet nine. And yep. that change is something that could be detected. Um, yep. And so rather than looking for desperately slowly moving objects, uh, in the Milky Way, what you look for is objects which are um, changing uh, relatively rapidly, a heat signature, you could put it that way, that's that's changing um, more rapidly than what you would expect from any other object in the background. It would be a variable object. And moreover, um, the, uh, the author of this paper has pointed out that there is one telescope on Earth which would be eminently capable of detecting that at this enormous distance uh, from Earth, and that is ALMA, the Atacama oh. Large Millimeter, Submillimeter Array, uh, up there in the heights uh, above San Pedro de Atacama uh, at 5,000 metres, uh, and operated by uh, actually a a sort of uh, uh, it's these three different uh, organisations that operate Alma, but one of which is the European Southern Observatory, which of course is very close to our hearts here in here in Australia because of our strategic partnership. So um, he, uh, he, this author is suggesting we should get Alma onto looking for satellites of Planet Nine, uh, which is an extraordinary idea. So um, yeah. Um, Fascinating thought, except uh, what if it's not a planet? What if it's a body of smaller objects, which is another theory as to what might be causing those gravitational effects? That's that's right. There are a number of, you know, a, a, a planet-sized black hole is another one that's been suggested. Right. Uh, so, uh, but, but um, even such a weird and wonderful object as that might have satellites. That's, that's the idea. If, okay. if, the, if, the, if the Planet 9 or the Planet 9 proxy, whatever it is, is compact enough and has satellites around it, then the tidal effects will still exist. All right. So uh, it's just a, an idea as to how we should look. That's not actually happening as yet. Sadly, no, but uh, it might go on the wish list for, uh, you know, Planet 9 pundits, uh, and you never know. It might happen. By that, I mean somebody might apply for time on Alma to do this, uh, and that could, could do the trick. The other reason it's called Planet Nine is because it's when you ask the question, have they found it? The answer is nine. <laughs> it would be in Munich where it was last week. <laughs> Two weeks in a row we've had the German <laughs> Yes, we are. <laughs> we're, getting, we're getting messages about it as well. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's right. No idea. All right. Uh, this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space nuts. Now, uh, we're going to talk about sun rays on Mars. This has been a, a rather amazing photograph that's been sent back the, by the Curiosity rover. Uh, it also dovetails well with uh, a photo that was sent to me by Rusty and Donnybrook 
of yeah. a similar situation um, looking out uh, from his place in Western Australia, and he was uh, asking why the sun sort of split up into rays. And um, the answer on Earth is dust um, and and sort of only letting through the rays of red light because the dust had scattered all the, um, all the other colours in the spectrum, something to that effect if I'm rem- remembering it correctly. Uh, but it doesn't look the same on Mars. It's a it's a different effect. Yeah, Maybe so, for the same reason, but a different effect. Yeah. I, um, so so you're right about the you know the the sunlight being red when it's really down on the horizon. Um, it's part, sometimes it's dust, but actually the molecules of the atmosphere also scatter um, light. So the blue light scattered out, and we see this predominantly red light. Now I'm not sure what um, Rusty was sending you but um when when we get this phenomenon uh, and it's you know everybody's seen it the phenomenon of of light uh, sunlight being sort of separated into individual rays by clouds blocking our view of the sun uh, and you combine that with a dusty atmosphere then you get these rays of light the shafts of light that are yeah. uh, so obvious at sunset uh, they've got a technical term. They're called uh, crepuscular rays. Uh, crepuscule is a French word meaning evening or twilight, um, and so uh, they're, they're, they're you know they're very common, and um, I find them fascinating. Sometimes, uh, and I've only seen this once, uh, and it was not very far from here, where I used to live in Terry Hills in northern Sydney. I saw those rays going right across the sky, all wow. the way from. The setting sun on one side to the, uh, the the opposite, what's called the antisolar point on the other side, and occasionally you will see that, uh, and occasionally you'll see what looked like rays. Uh, if you've got your back to the sun, you can see rays uh, sort of coming out from the point exactly opposite the sun, and they're called antisolar crepuscular rays. And actually, oh. there's a picture of them. Uh, taken by Marty uh, some years ago in uh, my book, Cosmic Chronicles, or uh, what's he called in America, Exploding Planets and Invisible Stars. That's right. <laughs> uh, there's a nice color picture of those antisolar crepuscular rays. Um, but um, cut to the chase, we now have a lovely image uh, from Curiosity, uh, the uh, other rover on Mars that's still going strong, of crepuscular rays on Mars. And it, it's a phenomenon that has been expected but has never been seen before. And this is after sunset. And so what you've got is these rays of light and they're, they're blocked into rays by uh, clouds that are blocking the sunlight below the horizon. Yeah. Uh, so it turns the light, instead of being a fan of light, it turns it into a, you know these individual streaks of light. But they too are lighting up thin clouds uh, in the in the sky above uh, curiosity and that's right. why they show up the crepuscular rays uh, I think uh, it's something that we might expect down the track from some rover on Mars to see the antisolar crepuscular rays that I've just been talking about as these shafts of light meet on the other side of the sky uh, an effect of perspective of course the the whole thing is due to perspective because these shafts of light are actually parallel. Uh, it's the sun's light is, is par- parallel rays because the sun is so far away, and yeah. as it blocks the uh, as the clouds block block bits of it, so you get just individual shafts of light. They look as though they're they're streaming from the sun itself. A very yeah. evocative image, but they're actually parallel. Yeah, and yet um, being after sunset on Mars, it's it's not 
the kind of red you see on Earth. It's um, it's a very different. Um, it, it's, yes, well, sunsets on Mars are blue, yeah. <laughs> and that's because um, uh, well, the, the the sky, the daytime sky on Mars is pink, and the sunset sky is blue, and it's the opposite way around from what we expect on Earth. Yeah, and that's because the dust particles, such a, l- a large amount of suspended dust in the Martian atmosphere, the dust particles are bigger than uh, the this molecules of air that scatter scatter sunlight on Earth, and so there's a different scattering process takes place, and that's why you've got a pink sky. Yeah, looks amazing. Um, if you want to look at that image, it's on the fizz.org website. It's, uh, it's quite, uh, it's quite pretty. I'll say pretty. Uh, and yeah, sun rays on Mars. If you do a search for that, you should be able to find it. Uh, now, um, to an- another story. Gee, we're jamming it in today, aren't we? Uh, is <laughs> the word. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it goes back to something that, uh, we get a lot of questions about, and I think we got a couple of questions about it last week, and that is the, uh, Big Bang. Um, now they're saying our universe may have been started by a dark Big Bang. What's a dark Big Bang? Well, it's the suggestion. What, uh, anyway, wasn't it at the beginning? Well, we, we don't know. But biblically, it was. Uh, it was so the Big Bang itself was not dark, uh, because, and we know that because we can still see it. Yeah, well, uh, right. with the in the cosmic microwave background radiation, that's the the Big Bang, the light of the Big Bang redshifted uh, to be a thousand or fifteen hundred times longer wavelength than it was when it when the light left. Well, um, it, it, this is really uh, trying to understand how dark matter uh, came into being um, because the, the, the current theory suggests that uh, the Big Bang uh, created space-time and matter, and, it, and at first it was just pure energy, uh, but uh, that pure energy, uh, I think when the universe was something like 15 to 20 minutes old, um, it, it, it's, it, it kind of condensed into, into protons and neutrons, uh, in a period which has the technical term of the big bang nucleosynthesis. Uh, and it, and it, it's, it, it's that this one of the, one of the reasons why we believe the big bang, because when you do the theory of how this big bang nucleosynthesis would work, you get exactly the amount of hydrogen, helium, and some lighter elements, uh, I can't remember what they are actually. <laughs> um, um, it's lithium one, I think there is a lithium issue. Anyway, those lighter elements uh, basically are uh, exactly what we find in the universe. Is what's predicted by big, big Bang nucleosynthesis, which is one yes. reason why the Big Bang theory is so, uh, you know, is so uh, well established. However, um, what we can't understand is where the dark matter came from. Um, um, I mean, we don't know what dark matter is. We know it's some some form of uh, subatomic particle, um, and, and there's a very good reason for believing that, uh, but it makes up the majority of mass in the universe. And so um, most theories of the Big Bang assume that, that you know, whatever the process was that generated the particles themselves, the, the, the particles that we can, uh, we can uh, see or detect, uh, also created dark matter. And after, uh, uh, and, and the dark matter then really didn't do much. It was just there, uh, not interacting with anything else. Uh, yeah. But this is a new, this new idea. Um, uh, I'm not actually sure 
it's Catherine Fries is the lead author of this paper. Not quite sure where Catherine's based. Um, but that uh, new idea that's due to Catherine and her colleagues, it, it argues that um, there was a different formation of dark matter particles. So uh, the, the dark matter didn't condense into particles at the same time as the, the visible matter. Um, no. it, was, it was left as a sort of radiation field within the, the early universe um, that took longer to uh, basically flop out into dark matter particles than the protons and neutrons did. They, they did it within the first 20 minutes or so. But the suggestion is that this radiation field that eventually became dark matter took longer uh, to, to, um, to, to turn from a radiation field into, into subatomic particles, even right. though they're invisible to us. And, and the, the reason why that's, um, that is useful in trying to work out what happened was that it essentially separates the evolution of normal matter from the evolution of dark matter. And uh, that kind of lets you concentrate on the, the way normal matter came into being, which we think we understand very well, but perhaps opens up new ways that we could look at the models of dark matter if it, if it had a, a completely separate evolution from, from the, the normal matter. I'm not sure I'm explaining this very well, but it is actually a really nice idea. And the team uh, is, I think, given the team that's uh, doing this research is giving the, uh, a, coined the term a dark big bang. Um, okay. They have put a limit on it, a time limit. That dark big bang had to happen uh, before the universe reached the age of one month. Uh, so sometime within the first month, you got right. the dark big bang. Okay. Now, I, I did uh, look up Catherine. She's got her own website. Good. And it says here on her website that she is the George E. Ullenbeck Professor of Physics at the University of Michigan. There you go. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, there's, there's one other consequence of this uh, that um, we might just mention before we turn into pumpkins. Uh, that um, they the suggest that uh, that dark big bang would actually uh, generate uh, very strong gravitational waves that might be detected in today's universe. And so uh, they are concentrating on gra gravitational wave detection as being perhaps one way of investigating this further. Fascinating. Okay. Lovely stuff, isn't it? It's great. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, well, we'll, well, as I keep saying, we will crack it one day. We will figure it out. Yeah, indeed, we will. We hopefully tomorrow. Yes. Um, Probably won't be maybe, you and me, but we'll do. Maybe not. We'll... <laughs> All right. Uh, this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems, and here with a go. Space Nuts. All right, Fred, uh, we turn it over to the audience, or we turn our attention to the audience as they come up with some questions for us. And our first one today is from Peter, and it's a subject we've never talked about before, except for last week and maybe the week before. And... <laughs> Hello, Fred and Andrew. This is Peter from Belgium. 
I was just listening into the last episode and just thinking of a thought experiment. If traveling faster than the speed of light allows you to travel backwards in time from an outside point of view, imagine that you have an observer from Earth. Would you need to be traveling twice the speed of, uh, speed of light um, to actually travel backwards and uh, in time? just at the same rate, but then in reverse on how we currently perceive time on Earth. And so to travel faster back in time, you would just have to travel like three times the speed of light. Is this like a linear equation or do are we talking about exponential or another form of relation? Thank you very much and uh, love the show. Looking forward to the new episode every time. Thank you, Peter. Uh, faster than light question yet again. We get a few of those. Uh, so if you travel faster than the speed of light, which you can't do, but if you could, the theory is that time would go backwards. But if you travelled faster and faster, like t one, two, three, four, five, ten times the speed of light, would you travel back in time faster? <laughs> so this is... Um... It's kind of tachyon theory, is this? It's T A C H Y O N rather than T A T A C K Y O N. It's not that tacky. It's uh, it's uh, tachyons are hypothetical particles uh, able to travel at faster than the speed of light. Now, yep. as far as we know, they don't exist because uh, relativity is quite firm on the view that to accelerate anything to the speed of light, except light itself, uh, you have to provide infinite energy and that tends to be a showstopper infinite energy is not something we have uh even today where energy is a lot easier to come by than it used to be oh. unless unless you're in europe um so the um the uh the the, the idea of tachyons uh, exactly as peter says is that you will get the phenomenon that from the tachyon's point of view time is traveling backwards um now uh, I think actually what Peter's hypothesized is probably right, that the, the faster you travel, the quicker you go backwards in time. It would definitely not be a linear uh, relationship because nothing in relativity is linear. Um, oh. uh, everything's usually multiplied or divided by a factor of the square root of 1 minus v squared over c squared. That's the bit that always comes into uh, relativity equations, at least special relativity equations. Uh, and that's that's for example why uh, if you uh, it, it just to um, put it back to something that really does happen if you are on an object moving at uh, close to the speed of light if you're on a spacecraft and you point a torch out ahead of you uh, and shine the torch beam ahead of you uh, those two, your velocity and the to and the speed of light from the torch don't just add because if they did they would give you a they'd exceed the speed of light. Uh, yeah. There's something called relativistic addition of velocities. You can look it up on the web. And it, it once again, it's got that 1 minus v squared over c squared thrown in there that, that actually means that you never achieve the speed of light. So the velocity addition uh, has, uh, you know, it, it's not like normal arithmetic. And the same will be true uh, in terms of tachyons. I've never really looked at tachyon theory. Uh, I should, probably should do, shouldn't I, since we get, 
to talk about it quite a lot. Did uh, it? Have a look at the equations and see what they look like. But I can I can imagine already what they look like just because all relativistic equations have got that. Okay. So great question, Peter, and thank you for thinking along those lines. Mm. So the answer was yes. <laughs> Could have done that. Yes ish. Yeah. Yes ish. Yes, yeah. maybe. Yes. So they're not linear. There's, that's that's the one thing I can say for definite. Right. It's not a, li a linear addition. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Now I'm going to swipe this question over and put it on your face because I need to read it in front of me. Okay. And uh, <laughs> this one comes from Gavin in Yass in New South Wales, which is near our national capital of Canberra. Uh, I have a question for, he's got two questions, so we'll do them one at a time. I have a question for Dr. Fred regarding a topic seldom mentioned here, space. Uh, it appears from photos, etc., that all matter has an angular momentum, which appears to be anti-clockwise except Venus. As all matter was formed from the Big Bang, a bang, I assume that the Big Bang also had angular momentum. If space was also formed in the Big Bang, it seems logical that space also has angular momentum. If you think of a bicycle wheel, the hub rotates at a slower speed than the rim. This means that further out you look from the hub, the faster the wheel is turning. If the Big Bang centre is everywhere, we are the hub. Same applies to distant galaxies. So what do you think of that idea, Fred? <laughs> um, I, so we don't know if no, the universe, the universe has angular momentum. What oh. we do know, and uh, Gavin's correct, uh, certainly in the solar system, most things revolve anti-clockwise as seen from above the Earth's North Pole. And that's because the cloud of gas and dust that formed the planets and the sun uh, actually was rotating. And the, the sort of theory is that uh, these giant gas clouds that form solar systems, um, they collapse. And in them, you get little whirls and eddies being formed and it's those eddies that gradually build up to give you a preferred rotational direction. And that's what imparts as it co collapses, the energy of the collapse goes into imparting uh, rotation to the planets. To, well, first of all, the protoplanetary disk, and then in turn, the planets which are formed within that disk. So uh, that's how solar systems work in terms of their rotation. And galaxies are probably somewhat similar. Uh, wow. that you start off with gigantic clouds in the early universe that collapse under their own gravity and begin rotating. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's the angular point I'm trying to make is that the angular momentum of objects within the universe comes from processes separate from the Big Bang. They're, they are physical processes that take place in the normal course of events of the universe. So in terms of the universe itself, we don't, have any way of detecting whether it's rotation or whether it's rotating. And if it was, what frame of reference would it be rotating in? Yeah. Um, because um, by, you know, the definition of the universe is everything we can see or detect. Uh, and um, that doesn't allow for multiverses, which is a different idea. Uh, but in the normal definition of a universe, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell. Um, only if there are multiverses would you perhaps be able to work out that there is some higher order reference frame uh, within which you could, against which you could measure the rotation of the universe. Okay. Have we found any galaxies that are rotating in the opposite direction to what we would consider normal? Yes. Um, huh. Only only in the sense that um, 
for example, spiral galaxies uh, uh, almost always are rotating with the spiral arms trailing. Uh, and that so that would be what you call the normal rotation direction. There is one, at least one that is completely counterintuitive. It's work rotating in the opposite direction from the spiral arm trailing model. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but uh, generally, um, galaxies behave well. Uh, I should explain though that you know you you don't really know the difference between clockwise and anticlockwise when it comes to galaxies because they're all. Uh, completely random angles. Uh, there are some indications of alignments along the filaments of the cosmic web, which is that sort of background scaffolding structure that we think is what gave rise to the, the large-scale structure in the universe. I think there are some ideas of alignments of rotation along um, for galaxies along those uh, filaments of the cosmic web. Uh, but, yeah, I've looked at that recently. But in, in, in general terms, galaxy rotations are pretty random. Okay. Now, Peter has a second question, and he said, um, recently, either the James Webb or Hubble telescopes found a gravitational lens. The lens had three images of a distant galaxy. It was observed that a supernova occurred in the galaxy, and the scientists were able to watch the supernova at three different times, i.e. the images must have traveled various distances through space due to the curvature of space around the lens. Uh, if we have a black hole or neutron star merger which creates a gravitational wave in that distant galaxy, would we detect three gravitational waves, i.e. one from each image, or would we see only the one? I feel that, would it, could, uh, that it would confirm that space bends uh, or light bends, one or the other. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm going to quote from a paper paper in Astronomy and Astrophysics, the uh, main European journal for astronomy. I'm going to quote from that. Uh, the quote is as follows. When gravitational waves propagate near massive astrophysical objects, their trajectories will curve, resulting in gravitational lensing and multiple images. As, ah. well, as we observe the waves from each multiple image, their amplitudes will have changed because of the focusing by lensing. So uh, the bottom line is, yes, um, gravitational waves behave like light when it comes to uh, com comes to gravitational lensing, which means that, yes, you might see multiple uh, uh, detections of gravitational waves from the same object uh, if it's lensed by an intervening galaxy or cluster of galaxies, for example. So there you good, go. great question. Mm. Yep. So, yes, the answer is three times GW rather than one times GW, which was Gavin's yes. little um, oh, abbreviation for Yeah, Yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay, so three, it's GW. three times GW, Gavin, yeah. that would occur there. Mm. All right, thanks for your question. Thanks also to Peter. If you have questions for us, of course, we'd love to hear from you. You can jump on our website and click on the AMA link and send us uh, a text or audio question that way, or you can click on the send us your voice message on the right-hand side, which just sits there regardless of which page you're on. And it's easy, you know, if you've got a, a device with a microphone, that's as simple as just pushing the button and saying, hi, I'm Fred from Sydney, and I have a question about muscats <laughs> um, or whatever. Uh, but uh, yes, that's as uh, easy as it gets. And while you're on our website, have a browse around, check out Astronomy Daily, check out the shop, check out ways of supporting us if you so desire through um, 
uh, various means. It's all available on our website and, uh, yeah, pretty easy. Um, Fred, uh, and don't forget social media. Uh, lots of people are very, very active on the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook, and it's uh, a lot of fun too. Um, I shamelessly posted uh, a, a, um, a link to my eBooks being on sale for the next couple of weeks, just in case you want, you know, just in case. <laughs> well, Fred got your plug. Yeah, I did. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, it's a, it's a good fun site. Uh, we're done for another week, Fred. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure and great to be back uh, in um, what a, is a really very special country. <laughs> it is, isn't that? Yeah. Although yeah. We're, we're shrouded in smoke here at the moment. We've oh, yes, fire. you will be. Yeah, you've got fires down there. Yeah. Big, big, hot, windy, dry yeah. day last week. Um, yeah, we've got a big fire south of the city. It's still burning, but they, they've got it uh, almost under control. Yeah. I, I love the wording they use at the Rural Fire Service around here. If it's not under control, it's being controlled. <laughs> okay. It's good stuff. Well, yeah. All right. That's yeah. But, um, yeah, we could see it. The grandchildren thought it was amazing. They thought it was a cloud, but it wasn't. It was smoke. Mm, yes. Um, Till next week, Fred, thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Andrew. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts. And uh, thanks to Hugh back in the studio. Uh, it's not a studio. It's actually a smoking room or something that he's converted into, you know, a man cave. Um, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. We look forward to joining you again next time on another edition of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.